Today we're in our third week of our series, Holy Habits, and we're going to look at a subject that is certainly a spiritual discipline, but really it's so much bigger than that. We're going to look at worship. Worship is really the subject. Everything in Scripture, the whole story is about worship. But it's also a spiritual discipline. It's something that we need to work into our lives because it does not come naturally to us to be true worshipers. We're going to explore that today. I'm going to start by doing a primer on worship, a brief summary of the broad picture and story of worship. Then we're going to look at the product, what worship produces in our lives, and then finally, how do we work that down into our daily habits? How do, how do we practice worship? We could fairly say that the whole story of the Bible is a story about worship. It starts in Genesis when God creates everything, and then he creates the human race. And his purpose was that that human race being created in his image would declare and reflect his glory. God created us to worship and honor him. And we did that in a place where there was innocence and intimacy. And then we rebelled. And that relationship out of which we were meant to be true worshipers was broken. And the rest of the story of human history is God seeking worshipers. And it begins with these very tragic words in the book of Genesis when God said, Adam, where are you? He's seeking worshipers. And he's willing to do the work to restore us to that calling. And he does it first through a people of his own making, the children of Israel. And he establishes a way of worship that serves to cover the sins of the people and make it possible for them to be in relationship with him, but also was a pointer, the prophetic symbol of the ultimate solution that God would make when Jesus would come to earth. The tabernacle was an amazing object lesson of what it took to become a true worshiper of God. Because the first thing you'd see when you walk in to the outer court, you couldn't avoid it, was the altar. You couldn't go any farther into the place where God was worshipped without sacrifice. And then beyond that was the, the lake of water, which was indicative of spiritual cleansing. And the, the symbolism is clear. Sacrifice allows me to be cleansed of my sin. And then beyond that was the actual tabernacle itself, which had two rooms. The first was called the holy place. And that was where the priests would go in every day and they would worship on behalf of the people, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the table of incense. And then there was a veil beyond which was the inner sanctum. Never has that term been more accurately used. The Holy of Holies, where God would reside, where that Shekinah glory, pillar of fire and smoke, would literally come and rest in and above. The symbolism was clear. That veil said, look, you can come this far, but no farther. What a stark difference between the intimacy that was ours in the garden and the worship that was possible in the Old Testament. Our sins could be temporarily forgiving. Shedding of blood made access to God, but not intimately. God was saying through that veil, you can come this far and no further. 
And the presence of God was a fearful thing. The high priests who would go in once a year, tradition tells us, some of you have heard me talk about this, tradition tells us they'd wrap a rope around their ankle and leave the gathered part on the outside of the veil. And they would have bells around their garment hem so that as they went in and silently went about offering blood around the mercy seat, if the holy God found that high priest unworthy to be in his presence and struck him dead, the others could pull him out using that rope so as not to have this ever-increasing body count inside the holy of holies. It's a fearful place because the way had not been made. And then the story continues centuries later. Jesus Christ, who was the true Lamb of God, the, the final sacrifice, hung on the true altar, which was the cross, and made the sacrifice for sin once and for all, making it possible for us to be forgiven once and for all. The most dramatic moment in that story when it comes to worship, Luke records that when Christ finished that sacrifice, that veil that had stood for centuries was torn from the top to the bottom. It's as though someone from heaven reached down and just tore it away because it was not needed because the way maker had made a way back into fellowship with God. We are restored into intimacy with him. We have been, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciled to God in Christ. And once again, we can be true worshipers Fast forward on into eternity, when the story is concluded, we see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne of God, declaring his honor and his glory. The whole story is about worship. How can we cover it in 27 minutes? (laughs) We can't. But we can understand the importance of it. And so... Let's do that. Now, I do want to mention a series where we actually talked about worship for 10 weeks, two years ago. It's called Enter In. We have both video versions and audio versions on the website or on the iTunes podcast or on our Vimeo page. So uh, if you really want to explore this, it's, it's well worth it. But for now, let's first work through this primer on understanding what worship is. We're going to start with the broadest Picture, and that is that worship is the purpose of everything. Everything God has ever done, everything He will do, seen and unseen, great and small, all serves in this great purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. Psalm 19 all creation declares the glory of God, the heavens declare the work of of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. Let's say it together. From him, through him, and to him are all things so that all the glory goes to him forever. This is an inescapable truth of the God that we worship and who made us. He is the source of everything. He sustains it all. And ultimately, its purpose is that he would be honored and glorified. Now, most of creation does that unknowingly, inanimately, passively. But people serve a unique place in that work of God that is about his being worshipped. We worship God knowingly. 
We worship God creatively, and this is really important. We worship God spiritually. In the book of Genesis, when God records the creation of the living creatures, he uses designations, the beasts of the field, the livestock, the crawling creatures, the fish, the fowls. He uses categories. Then when he makes the human race, there's a very important word that's used. It's the Hebrew word nephesh. And it means soul. And it's only used for us. It's what sets us apart from every other creature in God's creation. You see, when he made everything, he drew it out from the earth. He created the world and then he used the stuff of this world. As uh, is popularly said, the stuff of stars. God's stuff to create all of us. And he made man the same way. But then he does something very unique. Scripture says that he breathed into the body of the man the breath of God. And at that moment, he became a nephesh, a soul. You may find this hard to believe, but I got soul. (laughs) Every one of you has soul. It's what sets you apart. And it's what makes you unique as a worshiper because the human race uniquely stands as both existing in the physical world and in the spiritual world. Everything else is one or the other. There's the spiritual realm, and then there's the physical realm. You and I, as human beings, live in both, and therefore, we worship God physically, but we worship Him spiritually, and that is an important thing for us to understand. When Jesus met with a Samaritan woman, they fell into this debate, at least the Samaritan woman tried to turn it into a debate. Jesus wanted it to be about her. She wanted to to deflect. And so they got into a debate about worship. And it was about the location of worship. They had their place that they thought Jehovah should be worshipped. And of course the Jews had Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't concerned with location. He was concerned with seeing worship as vocation. And so he says to her, believe me woman, a time is coming. And in fact has now come. Because of his being there. The time had come that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he goes on and he says, those are the worshipers the Father is seeking. Think about that. That was Jesus' mission, seeking and saving worshipers, true worshipers. What what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, you see the answer in summary up on the screen. The word spirit means that because we are spirit and God is spirit, we worship Him through an intimate relationship. That's what sin took away from us. That's what the garden was. And that's what Christ made possible once again. I want to show you this verse on the screen from Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of the book tells the very story I just told you about the Old Testament and the temple worship and the sacrifice of Christ and the tearing of the veil, and our access to the presence of God. And this is the invitation he makes. Let's say it together. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies, we know what that means now. That's God's dwelling place. 
By the blood of Jesus, let's say this last part with conviction, let us draw near to God. And that language doesn't mean we come in and out. You don't visit the Holy of Holies. This church is not the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is God's living presence into which we move. We're back in relationship with God. The garden experience is once again ours as we walk intimately with the Father. So understand that first. Worship is rooted in a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus. Then the second word, spirit and truth. Not only do we worship Jesus through relationship, we worship him by revelation. True worship is responding to God's revelation of himself through scripture. We don't worship God just because of what he does for us. We worship God simply because of who he is. I want to show you a verse from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Yeah, I'm, I'm rolling through a whole lot of scripture because there's no single text that would cover what I want you to see today. Now, the people of Judah in this time that Jeremiah is speaking to are kind of like us. Things are going pretty well with them right now. But they've gotten off track in their worship. And they don't know what Jeremiah knows, that God's going to lower the boom on their idolatry. And it's coming. This is what Jeremiah says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. The word boast is the word to glory in. It's the language of worship. And what Jeremiah is touching on with the people of Israel, we need to have him touch on in our lives. Because we worship God. We glory in what God does for us. In fact, the American message that is currently most popular says those are the very things that we worship God for. It's the health and wealth gospel. I am blessed, hashtag blessed. I am blessed. <laughs> My life is coming together. I'm growing in knowledge and wisdom. I am blessed because I'm healthy. I'm vibrant. God has given me health. I'm blessed because I have abundance. This is the great deceit of American Christianity that we worship God, we glory in what he gives us. God's not interested. He starts by saying, this is what the Lord says. Don't glory in your wisdom and your strength and your riches. And then he goes on and says this, but let the one who boasts or, or worships or glories boast about this, that they understand and know me. That I am the Lord who executes kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And then he ends with this phrase, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. When those words, declares the Lord, show up in Scripture, he's putting an exclamation point on it. This is big. And when he says, for in these I delight, you know what he's saying? These are those who bring pleasure to me. These are those from whom I receive worship. Those that understand that they worship because of who I am, not because of what I provide. 
Strong implications there that we're going to get to in just a few moments. As an individual, you were created to worship. But even bigger than that, the church is a community of worshipers. Not only were we created to be in relationship with God, but we were created to be in relationship with one another. And here is something that you must truly understand. If you are going to fulfill your ultimate purpose as a worshiper, you must understand you cannot do that by running solo. Because God has crafted us into a community that together are a kingdom of worshipers. Peter puts it this way in his first epistle. Let's say it together. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. That's us. That word you is not singular, it's plural. It's us together. You yourself are not a royal priesthood or a holy nation. We find greater purpose in coming together as a worshiping body and community. You cannot be a true worshiper on your own. We have to do this together. We are more than the total of our individual parts when we come together and give glory to God. You know that because you experience it here, don't you? Well, that's a, a primer on worship. Now, let's go from there and look at the product of worship in our life. Now, it ought to be enough just to worship for worship's sake if, in fact, that is our ultimate calling. But when we get true worship right, there are other things in our life that come into alignment. And I just want to talk about what we get as true worshipers. And I have three things that came to mind today. The first is that worship produces an ultimate meaning and fulfillment in our lives. David writes in Psalm 63, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. But I have seen you and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Listen, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Do you see that? When we experience true worship, when we get there, we say, this is it. This is what I was made to do. Everything else pales in comparison. When you enter into true worship, you are doing what you were created for, and it makes life worth living. The second thing that true worship produces in your life, and we're going to spend some time here, and this may be difficult. True worship keeps our focus on God instead of ourselves. The thing that competes for your worship of God is not another deity or other priorities. The greatest enemy of true worship is you. Our fallenness, what we are born with, our fallen nature, 
The early church fathers had a Latin term for it, incurvatus in se. Say that, incurvatus in se. It means turned in on yourself. So we are all born with a self-focus. But it wasn't how we were intended to be. It is part of our moral brokenness. All sin, all rebellion, and ultimately all disillusionment and dissatisfaction comes out of living our lives with this self-focus. Self-sufficient, self-determined, self-serving, selfish. It all is the same thing. We are turned in on ourselves. In fact, in our natural state, Paul says in the book of Romans, we no longer even seek after God because we are so focused on our own needs. Because we are born with this fallen nature, we are unaware of how this self-focus and love is at work to keep us from being true worshipers. It's how we think we should think because it's how we've always thought. Even our Christian faith, and yes, our worship, becomes about the good that we receive from it. God and Jesus become the means to a better self or a better life. It is the worst and most deceptive form of idolatry. And its only cure is to turn our gaze away from ourselves and toward God for who He is, not for what we can get from Him. Then and only then will we exist for His glory rather than Him existing for ours. Now, here is the thing. We have even turned our religion into something that gives us permission to make it about us. I've already alluded to it when God spoke through Jeremiah 9. But it just becomes all about me. I even show up for worship with the congregation and I judge the value of it. What? Based on what? Based on what I get from it based on whether it moved me. You know what that means? That means you're the object of worship. It's so insidious, it's so subtle. We just accept the fact that this is how we think and so we invite God to be focused down here where we are with our stuff and our needs and our passions. God becomes a worshiper of you. And the more, by the way, we focus on how much God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, That's flipping what worship is into God worshiping you. Think about that. Is this too heavy? It's your greatest battle, and you don't even know it. Yeah. The way some of us come to God in worship, it's as though we're thieves at the table. It's as though we don't belong there. We're focused so much on our needs and our stuff that we come and we take what we can and then we bless God for his goodness. But that's not who we are. We belong at that table. We're children of the king. We don't worry about those things because our focus is on the king. When guests come to my house for dinner, they're coming for food. When my family comes to my house for dinner, they're coming for me and my wife. 
The food just comes along with it. Do you see the difference? True worship reminds us it's not about me, it's about God. And when I get that right, all the other things come along. I've told this story. I didn't plan to tell it to you. Years ago, we were at the Topsfield Fair. The kids were young. We were in the petting zoo section of the Topsfield Fair. I was sitting right in front of the uh, elephant ride. And you could see the main way. And there was this little girl there on her own. And she had like three balloons that were attached to her wrist. And she was just standing there loving those balloons. And and then she decided she wanted to reach one, and so she grabbed one, and she pulled it down, and she held it like this, and then the other two just kind of bounced up into the air again, and she just loved that balloon. And then she looked up again, and she put that balloon in between her knees, and then she reached up, and she pulled another balloon down. She loved that. So she has one between her legs, she has one here, and now she's still got one up in the air, and she looks at that one. And she takes this one, and she puts it right here. And then as she's pulling this down, the one that's here pops up that way, and this one pops up that way. So now she's a mess, all for the love of balloons. And then, I didn't hear it, but you could tell someone beyond my view called her. And the look on her face when she saw, I assume, a parent. If this was not a safe person, this whole illustration falls apart. (laughs) The look of love she had for that parent was greater than her affection for any of those balloons. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow she began running. And by the time she passed beyond my sight, all those balloons had become untangled and would just come along with her. When you focus on your balloons, (laughs) you got the idea. When you focus on God, He worries about the rest, and you can leave them to Him. They, They just come along with you, you see? Yeah. Worship focuses on God. That may have been the most important thing. Worship also provides purpose and meaning in every circumstance. You see, when you're turned in on yourself, only the good things are a cause for hashtag blessed. You never see anybody say, yeah, I got cancer, hashtag blessed. But when I face even difficulties and I'm a true worshiper, I at least know one purpose that God has in it. And that is that even in this, I can bring glory to him. And I can tell you, there are seasons in my life that made absolutely no sense. And I had no idea what the heck God was doing. And I was in the worst of pain. And the thing that carried me through and my family through one season was the one thing we knew we could do, as difficult as that circumstance was, was to make sure that we did nothing that made less of God. And in the end, we brought glory to him through it. So you can never say that any experience in your life is meaningless when you're a true worshiper. All of it has an ultimate purpose. Well, with that in mind, just let me take a couple minutes and talk about how to bring that into practice. What are some ways we can create habits that allow us to be true worshipers? Let me just list them. First, 
You need to die to yourself every day. To yourself. That part that you are bent towards because of your fallenness. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about forgiveness and new life, it's a one and done type of language. Being born again, entering into the kingdom of God. But when he talks about followership, following Jesus... In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, follow me, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross. Who knows what the next word is? Daily and follow me. See, there's real truth there. Your battle to be a true worshiper requires that you get the fact that you wake up with a fallen nature turned in on yourself. And you need to renounce that. You need to get in the habit as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, of every day saying, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. A daily dedication of your life to God and a dying to that self-gaze that we all have. Secondly, we need to pursue God hard. That's not great grammatically, but it just feels good coming out of my mouth. It's got all the energy I want. You need to follow hard after God. You need to do the work that it takes to get to know Him so that you're not just worshiping the God you know right now, but you're coming to know the God who we worship. Francis Chan said, we worship a God who can never be exaggerated. I love that. You'll never know Him enough. We need to be growing because the more we know Him, the better we can worship Him. Third, you need to be part of a worshiping community. Even a local church can encourage self-worship. Self-focus on what we receive rather than what God receives from us. Teaching becomes about making our lives work rather than living a life that honors God and surrenders to His purposes. The focus is on personal success rather than personal holiness. God is a means to an end not the end. We need to join with others who seek God wholeheartedly in worship, who hear and respond to His word so that He is honored. His will is accomplished on earth. You cannot be a true worshiper on your own. I pray that that will always be who we are as a journey when we come together. We'll be a true community of praise. And finally, you need to give every activity to God for his glory. Here's the thing. For a true worshiper, there is no such division as sacred and secular. It's all sacred. In fact, there's a phrase I like to remind people of when they think about their lives as worshipers, and it's that we are the temple of God now. And that means everywhere you are, is a place of worship. Everything you do is an act of worship. And what that means is you are not a true worshiper if the lip service you offer when you come to corporate worship doesn't match how you live the rest of your life. If the rest of your week and your moral choices and the things that you're doing are bent towards yourself, then you don't understand a life of worship. For a true worshiper, church, family, work, 
and even the bedroom are sacred. Paul put it this way, and this is where we're going to close. Let's say it together. I beg you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's what true worship is. Literally, he's saying our bodies offered to God to be used only for his purposes. So two questions on the way to true worship. Are you self-focused or God-focused? And do the rest of the arenas of your life match what your desire is sitting here right now? Father, it's a lifelong journey to root out that self-focusedness that keeps us from being true followers and true worshipers. It's a daily habit of dying to that old broken nature. Father, forgive us for gladly asking you to forgive us of the results of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our sin, our bad choices, but not inviting you to heal that brokenness and replace it with the God focus in our lives. It truly is all about you. Forgive us for ever making it about anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.